Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we are going to be wrapping up our sermon series through the eight miraculous signs of the book of John. Uh, about eight weeks ago now, we embarked on this study through the book of John. In the book of John, he highlights eight miraculous signs, the first of which being the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And now we come full circle to John 21, the last of those signs. I'm going to go ahead and read it now. John 21, verses 1 through 19, is where we find our text for this morning. This is after the resurrection of our Lord from the grave. It says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
We'll stop there. During this sermon series, we have been shown through the Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of John's gospel some of the awe-inspiring miracles that Jesus performed during the years of his earthly ministry. Some of them I wish I could go back in time and see. I really wish we could. It would be amazing to see some of these things happen. But one of the things that has struck me time and time again throughout this study has been not only what Jesus did that was amazing, but the way that Jesus involved human beings in the working of his miracles. We've paused a couple times to point this out. Almost in every case, Jesus insists on human participation in the working of these signs. And to be sure, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus needed them to do the miracles in some way. Jesus, of course, is not lacking in power. He is never in any way dependent on human beings. But as signs, these miraculous works of Jesus were meant to vividly illustrate the reality of who Jesus is and why he came. And so I'm inclined to think that human involvement and participation in the working of these signs is deeply significant. The first of Jesus' signs, of course, was when he turned water into wine. And although Jesus was certainly capable of not using people to fill up the pots and take the wine to the master of the feast, he insisted on using human servants to do that. And I assume it pleased him most to do it that way. But why the involvement of the servants, you know? Couldn't Jesus have just filled the empty vessels with wine without their laboring to fill those pots with water? And although it might at first strike us as being unnecessary to the performance of the miracle, we saw in that first sign that strange mingling of divine power and ordinary human activity that really is the definition of what church is. It's the strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. At the feeding of the 5,000, we saw the boy who willingly surrendered his food. And the disciples themselves who took the miraculously multiplying food and distributed it to the hungry crowds. Miraculous divine power and ordinary human obedience woven together into the fabric of all of these accounts. To the man born blind, Jesus required that he first go and wash the mud from his eyes before his sight would be restored. And of course, as we noted, that sign was intended to graphically illustrate Jesus' own statement about himself, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But we know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, but in the Sermon on the Mount, he also said that you are the light of the world. In Matthew 5, 14, he says that, so which is it? Is Jesus the light or is his church? Well, of course, there is no contradiction, for it is the light of Jesus that shines in and through the church just as a flame fills a lantern. And once again, we see there the mingling of divine power and human means. Ordinary human vessels carrying the miraculous light of Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. You are the light of the world. 
It's the mingling. Two weeks ago, we studied the account of the time when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And even in that account, Jesus ordered that human beings roll the stone away from Lazarus' tomb. And after he had been resurrected, he ordered that others remove the burial cloths in which he had been wrapped. You see, in every one of these miracles, Jesus was pleased, glorified, honored to have human servants participate in the working of the signs. C.S. Lewis made this observation. He wrote, Creation seems to be delegation through and through. God will do nothing simply of himself, which can be done by creatures. I suppose this is because he is a giver, and he has nothing to give but himself, and to give himself is to do his deeds, in a sense, and on varying levels, to be himself, through the things he has made. God accomplishes all kinds of high heavenly purposes through low earthly means. So the involvement of human participants in the miraculous signs of Jesus is, I think, a picture of how God works in and through State Road today, and more broadly, his church. What I want us to see here, what I think we as a people need to see here, is that more than wanting to be a blessing to the world, God wants to bless the world through his people. This is what makes the inaction, the silence, the laziness, the stinginess, the prayerlessness, the inconsistency, and the overall apathy of some Christians so deeply scandalous. Christ's hands are never tied. It's never as though we are a roadblock that's impeding Jesus' progress in the world in some way. But for those Christians who just bury their treasure in the ground, they miss out on the blessings to come. Christ is the head, but by his design, by his purposes, we are the body. His plans to reach a rustic county and the world with the gospel will involve of necessity a miraculous change of hearts. But it will also involve us as willing joy-filled, obedient participants in that work. In some mysterious way, and I really have to confess here, I don't fully understand it. This pleases God and it glorifies Him more than doing it without human participation. But what this observation means practically is that we must open our mouths to share our gospel hope in Jesus. The church is his plan A, and there is no plan B. His plan A is perfect. We must do this deliberately and intentionally, when it's well-received, when it's not. We'll have to do more than talking about Jesus, too, but never less than that. We'll have to do other stuff, too, like serve our neighbor, open our homes, meet needs, Demonstrate, even in our sufferings, the all-satisfying excellence of Christ. And, of course, pray, pray, pray. There are some in the church who admire Jesus. And there are some who love to study him. However, we need to always be reminded that Jesus did not come to gain admirers or students. He came to gain followers. If we want to see Jesus do certain things in our families, or community, or our nation, or church, but we do not 
personally want to participate in that doing, then we do not yet understand what Jesus meant when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Or when scripture tells us that Jesus is the head and we are the body, the church is made up of that same mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human means that we have seen woven throughout our study into the fabric of these accounts. He intends to do the miraculous here, now, through our willing, obedient, faithful response to his commands. And I want us to have that fresh in mind, in our minds, as we study this eighth and final sign, because I really think it is kind of the main point. I think it's significant, for example, that when the disciples, having recognized Jesus on the shore, excitedly join him there, they find that he has already started making for them a breakfast. But Jesus then asks something strange. I say it's strange because of everything else we've come to know about Jesus over the course of this study. He insists that they add some of the fish that they had just caught to the breakfast that he had, was making. The Holy Spirit wants that small, seemingly insignificant detail included in the biblical record so that all these thousands of years later we could see it and enjoy it together. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. The implication is that he was bringing some, of, some fish to add to the meal. Now, do you think Jesus misjudged how many people would be there? <laughs> no, not likely. And we know from the feeding of the 5,000 that if there was not enough fish, what could he do? He could just make more. <laughs> He's already done that. We saw that. This lack of fish is no impediment. But this is a sign Remember that, in all of this, Jesus is teaching us about who he is and why he came. This is significant. He says, bring your fish and add it. It's a strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human means. And I think that the Bible makes it plain that what is closest to God's heart is that mingling of both. And we can get off in the weeds by not holding the two in balance. I have known some Christians, I think, who demonstrate in the way they talk about Christianity and their faith a certain fascination with the miraculous. Angels, miraculous works. And sometimes it seems to me that that fascination comes at the expense of devaluing ordinary faithful obedience in the Christian life. It discounts the miracle of a life that embraces a humble, invisible, steadfast yielding to God in the everyday, in favor of something flashier with more of a wow factor. But we've all known the other extreme too, haven't we? It's that brand of Christianity that reduces one's faith to a moral code, and that puts all the emphasis on doing right, human effort, commitment, and faithfulness but which grows uncomfortable at any expectation that God would do the supernaturally powerful, the miraculous in the church. We see the insufficiency of man on his own in this story. 
Human striving alone will never be enough when it comes to accomplishing the supernatural calling of the church. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. (laughs) This is what it looks like to be a church, by the way, that discounts the supernatural, that reduces Christianity to just a moral code, that puts all the emphasis on doing church, being a Christian, on human effort, elbow grease, commitment, giving, showing up, but never praying never asking the Holy Spirit to show up. This is what it looks like, by the way, and it is exhausting to be in such a church. It is all night. It reduces church into a religious treadmill. It really does. Work, 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 nothing to show for it. But then we see the mingling of their ordinary yielded obedience with the supernatural power of Jesus. And then we see a church clicking on all eight cylinders. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Wow. In this moment, things come full circle for Peter. This scene in John 21 is eerily reminiscent of the time when Jesus first called Peter, who was then called Simon. We find that account in Luke 5. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So this last sign in the book of John is eerily reminiscent of that first time when Jesus had his first encounter with Peter. And I think that's on purpose. Uh, In some ways, the account in Luke 5 is the first commissioning of Peter, the saying, you will be fishers of men. But then came a disastrous episode in Peter's life. Do you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said to him, you will betray before the cock crows, you will say, deny me three times, and he does. And then here, he comes and essentially recommissions them all, most pointedly Peter. And there's something in here for us to see. It's almost like God is mixing metaphors. Have you ever mixed metaphors? I was working with somebody one time, and he said, it's not rocket surgery. And I said, I said come on. <laughs> rocket science. He mixed his metaphors. 
And here, God starts by having a conversation with the disciples about fishing. You're fishers of men. And now he transitions with Peter into talking about being a shepherd. And really, what's happening here is we're talking about fishing for sheep. God accomplishes his great commission purposes through the winning and the training of disciples, fishing and shepherding. In Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There it says, go and make disciples. That's the winning of a soul. That's fishing. And then it says, baptize them and teach them. That's shepherding. So really, the Christian business is about fishing for sheep. And what is a disciple? We've defined this many times. We as a church are committed to being a group of people who love God, love others, and love in action. And what that all boils down to, essentially, is that we are a group of people committed to being sincere, from the heart, imitators of Jesus. Jesus is our example in everything. And Jesus himself said that all the law and the prophets, all of my example, all of it boils down to this, that you love God with all that you are, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And implied in those two statements is that that love would be active. Biblical love is always active. So what is a disciple? What is this thing we're supposed to make? We're supposed to take people who are far off, and we are to help them along to become sturdy followers of Jesus, sincere imitators of his example. Fishing for sheep. Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Christianity is a converting religion. It's always been so. And before we can intentionally train up a disciple, we must first win disciples. Romans 10, 13 through 15 and verse 17 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Isn't this interesting that God in his word says, how can they believe unless someone tells them? That is a strange mingling of miraculous divine power and an ordinary human opening of your mouth. I think very often we are afraid to open our mouths because we are afraid that God won't back that effort up, that there will be no Holy Spirit to go along with the awkward conversation. There will be no miracle. Last week we studied about those 10 lepers, remember that? And Jesus said, while they were still fully infected with leprosy, go and show yourself to the priest. And it says in the Bible that in the going they were healed. (laughs) And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. I love that line about beautiful feet. Do you remember when we uh, sent off the Cheenies, Josh and Alex? I gave them the ugliest socks I could find at Walmart. Because I said, that's beautiful feet. You know, you're, <laughs> you're going, you're a person with beautiful feet going to share a good message. I was, 
uh, encouraged. I went to the Thanksgiving service in Washburn, and he was wearing one of those pairs of socks. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But we're not just about fishing for sheep. We're also about shepherding fish. I, I think some churches are very lopsided in this. They're very heavy on their emphasis to do evangelism, but once they catch the fish, it just kind of rots in the barrel. <laughs> I don't really know how to, to take that and do something with it. And maybe I'm a not great pastor in this. I don't really know. I think some churches are the other way, where they don't know what to do with lost people. They're confused and bewildered. They find them off-putting, messy. They would rather just deal with sheep. Let's just talk about shepherding. And maybe somehow those fish will just wiggle their way in here <laughs> rather than us going out and catching them. But a, 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 true, a church that is really caught the vision, I guess, is one, is one where people are fishing for sheep and shepherding fish. We're doing both at the same time. Here, uh, Jesus rams this home, by the way, with these three questions that he asks Peter. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And this mirrors the threefold denial of Christ on the night he was betrayed. And I think is meant to reinstate Peter to his calling to shepherds God's people. And in this exchange between Jesus and Peter, we see some requirements for Christian service. First, a Christian shepherd, somebody who's going to come alongside and shepherd and disciple others, is somebody who loves Jesus above all. That's the only motivation behind Christian service that is pleasing to God. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, it states that without love, all our words and singing are just noise. And that despite having great wisdom, understanding, and even faith, without love, we are nothing. And even if we give all our goods to the poor and even perform the ultimate sacrifice, martyrdom, but have not love, we gain nothing. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. John 13. And so Jesus asked Simon a very pointed question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And the Bible, it is lost to us forever what he was pointing to. Do you love me more than these? We're left to wonder, is he pointing at the fish? Is he talking about livelihood? Is he talking about the other disciples? We don't know. He says these. But we do know this, whatever it was is immaterial. I I think that's actually a beautiful way the Bible puts it, because if he had said these fill in the blank, we would just focus on that. But instead we're just left with the question, should we love anything more than Jesus? Right? It's regardless of whether he was pointing at the other disciples or a picture of Peter's family <laughs> or the fish that they had just caught or any of it. It doesn't matter. I think it's intentionally left blank by our Lord in the wisdom of how the Bible was given to us because really it asks the question, who cares what he was saying more than these? What at all should we love more than Jesus? Well, nothing. 
In Luke 14, 26, it even says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you love me more than these? You fill in the blank. What is that thing that rivals Christ in our hearts for mastery? What is our greatest treasure? Jesus is asking through the pages of Scripture today to you, to me, do you love me more than these? I always think it's really interesting in the story of the young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? Jesus says you have to sell everything and give to the poor because he was very rich. And he walked away dismayed. Now that first bothered me because I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's never by works. And so when the guy comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says you have to do something which is problematic for how I understand the rest of the Bible and the gospel. But what Jesus is really saying in that moment is he's reiterating the greatest commandment of all. He's looking right into that man's heart and saying, you can never be a follower of me because you have erected an idol to wealth in your heart, and I'm not going to compete for space there. <laughs> what you need is me. But before, I, before you can gain eternal life, you have to kill the God that you truly worship. I'm not going to share space with your love of wealth. You shall have no other gods before me. And so right now, when he says this, do you love me more than these? It's a very pointed question. It's a question that all Christians have to answer. Is there anything that we love more than Jesus? We're going to have a hard time fishing for sheep or shepherding fish, if that's true. The, last, the next thing is this. It says, a Christian shepherd feeds and tends the sheep. I, you know, he, he says to Simon, do you love me? He says, yes. He says, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I think this is a, a something that is, all Christians should be involved in this in some way. All Christians, regardless of your calling and your gifting, should be having some part in the feeding, the get tending of the sheep. We can all take a part in it some way. And Peter here is called to do it. You may not be called to preach a sermon or even lead a small group, but there are Christians in your life who you can be tending to in some way, in a sacrificial way. A Christian shepherd also lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And again, I'm convicted as a pastor by the way Jesus recruited followers. Because <laughs> right? I do the opposite. <laughs> Jesus said on the front of the contract, uh, you follow me, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be crucified upside down in a Roman Colosseum. And then he says, follow me. Follow me, the guy who went to the cross. It's an uncomfortable thing. But Jesus says, do you love me? 
Feed my sheep. This is how you're going to die. You're going to lay down your life for the sheep. Peter, in a very real sense, laid down his life for you and me. He died for the testimony that the resurrection was true. And if he didn't die for that, we might be hesitant to believe in it. Peter laid down his life just as Jesus did for us, for the truth of the resurrection, that we might believe. But perhaps most importantly is this, that a Christian shepherd follows Jesus. This is the very definition of what it means to be a disciple. And if we are to be making disciples, we must be disciples ourselves. True discipleship looks like following Jesus. I, uh, I have, uh, it was funny, last night we were sitting in our living room and Sarah asked, where's Tilly, our dog? And Tilly was sitting on her lap, which she said. <laughs> I, think she, I think she was very tired. But the dog had just been laying there motionless between her legs for so long that she was like, where is Tilly? But the reason she was worried is because if you want to find Sarah in our house, find that dog. That dog just shadows my wife all day long. She goes wherever Sarah goes. And it's interesting to me that if you have somebody who's following you today, whether it be a close friend who's new to the faith or growing in their faith, maybe it's a child in your home, maybe it's a friend for whom you're the only example of Christianity that they have, And to the degree that they're following you, where are you taking them? When they follow you places, what places do you take them to in their mind, in their thinking? In reality, what shows do you watch with them on the TV? That kind of thing. I'm humbled to think that if anybody's following me, where am I taking them by my example? The only way to make a disciple is to be one. And I think in all of this, we see Jesus in the commissioning of Peter hits these points. Be a fisher of men. Do it in my power. Trust in my power. Be a shepherd in my power. Be the real deal and be serious about these things. And I think this is where John wraps up his gospel on purpose. What are we going to do? Jesus has told us who he is and why he came. Now let's not go out of here and live like that doesn't matter. There's fish to catch and there are sheep to shepherd and we can all find our place in that work in some way. We all have something to do and I am, I, we can do it with a light heart because it's not dependent on my power or my work ethic to get it accomplished. But we do have to trust in that strange mingling that is the church. Miraculous divine power, ordinary human faithfulness. That's why I'm grateful for a praying church. I'm grateful for a church that is doing its level best to live these things out. And we can always do more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be yours. Father, at some point, your nets encircled me and my friends here in this room. And Father, like fish who are wild in the water, we had no desire for you when we were caught. And Father, you made of us a new creation. Father, you made us from fish into sheep, followers of you. And that was a miraculous change that you worked in our heart. 
And God, if we all look back over the path, the meandering path of our faith journey, we see those people who you use to accomplish that. God, all of it was done through others. Fishermen and shepherds sometimes playing both roles. God, there are people who first told us the gospel, who first told us how to get home to you, and how to, even though death hangs over all of us, that there is a way to life. And then, Father, after coming to faith in the gospel, there were others who came alongside us and who taught us about you, taught us your commands, taught us about who you are and how to become more like you. And Father, we are grateful for all of them. But God, we don't want to just say thank you for those people. We want to say thank you by being those people to others. Father, show us, Lord, how we can go out from here and by hook and crook, bring more into the church and bring more into heaven, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.